Playback on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by FexcoCurrency.com. Your route to great rates on your travel money at participating credit union. Dirut, hello, August Folterstaku Playback. Well, this week there really was only one name on everybody's lips. Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Joe Biden. President Biden. Joe Biden. Joe Biden. US President Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Everybody's gone bonkers for Joe Biden. <laughs> on Tuesday night, the 46th American president landed in Belfast and from Wednesday morning onwards, it was a whirlwind of speeches and ceremonies and conversations and selfies. So many selfies. And the president seemed to be in great form. Moving from the role of international statesman as a friend, I believe democratic institutions established through the Good Friday Agreement remain critical to the future of Northern Ireland. To the American cousin home on holidays. Well, Mom, <laughs> you said it would happen. And everywhere he went, he caused a stir. They lined up to see him in Belfast. So your president has just landed here. What do you think about that? We're actually trying to go see him right now. Just yeah. see if we can see his car. <laughs> <laughs> drive past somewhere in the city. So Crazy. <laughs> we watched Dairy Girls too in the whole like Bill Clinton landing. So I feel like, like I'm like living my little Dairy Girls. <laughs> As heard by Una Kelly from Morning Ireland. They lined up in the lashing rain in Carlingford to catch a glimpse. Tell me about why you're here and what you're hoping for. No show like a Joe show <laughs> from Newry. I'm here since three hours. Oh, standing in the rain. Yeah. Message to Joe Biden. Welcome to Ireland. Vulture Joe. A rather damp John Cook was heard on drive time. And in Ballina, they lined up for hours and hours and hours in anticipation for the big show on Friday night. It's unbelievable, the excitement. But it's great to have him back as president. I think tonight will be a celebration of his heritage here in Ballina. There will be a fantastic turnout. This week we had a kind of an emotional week because the girl's grandmother passed away and she passed away in the hospice which Joe had turned the sod on. And we just thought it was so poignant that he's coming back this week. As Theresa Mannion heard for the news at one on Friday. Now there were many, many voices on the airwaves this week to discuss and analyse every step of this visit. And later in the programme, we will go through his tour in finer detail. But for me, with hours of great speeches and reaction to choose from, it's kind of hard to know where to start. But I think the contribution from former Irish president and proud Ballina woman Mary Robinson is as good a place as any. Well, it's very important to Ballina that he's coming back for the third time. And the town is full of excitement. And I had a good warm greeting with President Biden at the dinner in Dublin Castle. I told him that I've actually brought famous light in the window down to Ballina so that it will now be housed in the Mary Robinson Centre uh, across the River Moy, just opposite where he will be speaking. You're also going to be reciting a poem by the, the late and indeed your great friend Ivan Boland ahead of his speech. It's the Emigrant Irish. It's a poem I know well from Ivan. We were very close friends. It's not an easy poem because it's a poem before we appreciated the Irish emigrants. Mm. So when I'm introducing it, I will say this. Just a word about the visit overall. How do you assess how this visit has gone? I think President Biden has managed to link in clear pleasure and joy and happiness as an individual, as an Irish-rooted president, being back home, as he says, with serious messages calling for power sharing, but not putting undue pressure on the DUP, which would not be helpful. 
Now, before Joe Biden even stepped on the stage at Ballinam, he'd fulfilled a whirlwind set of events in Mayo. Well, it was an extraordinary afternoon. Drive time on Friday evening, Samantha Lebrary brought us this amazing story that Father Richard Gibbons, who'd been on talking during the week about the visit to the shrine, had discovered that there was a former army chaplain in Knock called Father Frank O'Grady, who had a very personal connection with Joe Biden. He started speaking about his family immediately, about his son, Bo, who passed on, who's died. But then we mentioned about an hour or two before that, we have a retired U.S. Army chaplain who happened to be at Bo's side when he passed away, the last rites as it were. And when he heard that, he, he just wanted to meet him straight away. And we actually uh, have Father Frank O'Grady on the line. Can you tell us a bit about your experience today? I was very surprised when I got a phone call that the president wanted to see me. And I hadn't seen him really for about eight years since his son, Bo, died. And also, of course, had a son, Hunter, was there. So we had a kind of a real reunion. And he invited me to uh, visit the Oval Office when I come to Washington again. And he was just thrilled to be in Knock. Drive time on Friday evening. Going to go now to... Dundalk, because last night distant relatives of Joe Biden gathered with him in the Windsor Bar on Dublin Street in Dundalk. I'm joined by the proprietor, Donald McGeough. Good morning to you. Good morning, Philip. How are you? And on Thursday morning, it seems the Biden charm was working a treat. He could pop up anywhere, as Philip Boucher Hayes heard from Donald McGeough who'd hosted the president at his Windsor bar in Dundalk. Joe stopped in his tracks and made his way around and got in behind the counter. And we'll deal with some of the fallout of that later. So all my staff got to shuffle along with him for the next 10 minutes as he shook hands and continued on his way. It was a wonderful (laughs) moment. Tell me about the connection that he made with your mum. Oh, when he saw me, mother, he kind of just went straight for her, as in, this is the most important person in the room. Embrace me, mother. They talked like a brother and sister would meeting at a wedding. And then me mother just uh, mentioned that um, my dad, who passed away two years ago, it's really... A moment of genuine human connection. And I just hope dad upstairs is... (sighs) Okay. I bet you he is. I bet you he is, Donald. But while most of the voices on air this week were hugely enjoying the Biden visit, it's not all cheers and flag waving. For people before Prophet TD Paul Murphy, he was not a man to sit on the fence about his views on this visit. Paul Murphy, why did you choose not to welcome I mean, I, I have found the whole visit to be utterly nauseating in terms of the approach of our media and our politicians who have been nothing but obsequious and sycophantic. There hasn't been a single critical question that I'm aware. He is the leader of the most powerful country in the world. He is a warmonger. He is a climate polluter, despite what he said yesterday. Brendan Power, is Paul Murphy reading the room right? No. I honestly don't believe that your decision to stay outside yesterday put a major crimp on Joe Biden's day. From the gathering with Philip on Friday. Later that afternoon, though, Mildred rang Katie on Liveline and she was having none of it. He's a man of the people. He talks to everybody. Privileged to have met him twice. She and her stiletto heels were still delighted to be there. Where did you meet him, Mildred? I met him in Castlebar twice. Did you actually meet him? Like, did you shake his hand? Did you get an old selfie with him? Oh, no, I him? met him and I got the biggest hug with him ever. And I have a lovely picture of the two of us together and I looking up into his face. Were you looking up <laughs> lovingly? Surely, I sure was, because he's such a wonderful, wonderful human being. I mean, he reminded me of all my brothers that away, went away to America and England. Why do you think there's such an affection for him here? There is such warmth for him out there. 
we had it for Kennedy, but it was different times in Ireland. It's just a great atmosphere here in Balmain. Super. It's great for Mayo. And did you get? Did you have to get up early to get in there? Because it sounds like you've got a great spot. Yeah, I had a great <laughs> spot. I did. I was here this morning. I'm, I'm still standing in the stiletto heels. <laughs> By nine o'clock tonight, I don't know what I'll be like. Mildred, you did not go to see Biden in your stilettos, did you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't own a pair of flat shoes. Even out mowing the lawn. <laughs> we'll have to do another programme on that one, Mildred. That is... <laughs> Now, as I say, we will return to the visit later in the programme. But in the middle of the joyful scenes this week, in the west of Ireland, in Hedford and Galway, there was heartbreak for the families of four young teenagers. Orla Jackson said Lucas Joyce and Christy Bowen, both 14 years old, had a huge circle of friends and were two particularly pleasant and smiling youngsters. The acting principal of their school spoke to Pat McGrath from Morning Ireland. We have lost two beloved members of our school community. It has had a ripple effect on our whole community. Today, we've had our, all our staff, we've had our school councillors, we've had NEPs, we've had our chaplain, and we've had our parish priest here to support our students. And as our parish priest, Father Ray, put it so aptly, today is Hetford's Good Friday. The support for our students will continue And I think perhaps the pain will continue for much longer than that. This is an extremely personal, tragic situation. Back to the Joe show and his enthusiasm and sheer pleasure at being here won most people over. And his enjoyment was clear too. He seemed to be relishing every minute of it as he told everybody in the Doyle during Thursday's address. Speaker, Chair, Taoiseach's all. People of Ireland, it's so good to be back in Ireland. If you forgive the poor attempted Irish... I'm at home. Now, it may be hard to believe, but there were actually other topics discussed on Radio 1 this week. Hair-raising ones. Sorry, couldn't resist. This is Mikey O'Loughlin, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning, Ryan. On Wednesday, Ryan Tuberty was joined by a showbiz colleague who was the most honest, chatty guest you could hope for. We cross paths regularly enough for the last number of years. As the showbiz editor for RSVP magazine, Mikey O'Loughlin is used to getting Ryan to share his personal stories with him. But on Wednesday morning... For today's conversation, it goes back to the late, late Eurosong special. The tables were turned. And you were there. And you were wearing a baseball cap. Mm-hmm. And I kind of made reference to it. You kind of went a little bit shy, which isn't your style because you're a pretty confident guy. And you explained to me why you were wearing it. I was a bit embarrassed, actually, because I was sorry that I had mentioned it. Little do you know. But you, you're very honest and you said what? So I had just had a hair transplant and I think that weekend, I was only about four weeks into it and not everybody knew. He told Ryan how hair loss in his early 20s led him to going to Turkey recently to get a hair transplant. Let's go back to... The beginning of, say, hair loss for you. Were you very young when you... Quite young. I think when I first started to notice, I was about 23. And then another person said, look, you can get a hair transplant, but it's not life-changing. You will have to get one again maybe in 10 years' time, 15 years' time. The hair that is transplanted, that's great. But the rest of my hair will continue to fall out in different stages. I had to weigh up what I was going to do. And in fairness to him, he told us everything about it. I was brought upstairs, I was given a Xanax, I was told you were doing this, you were doing that. And then my head was shaved. And then all of a sudden I was on a bed with an IV put into my arm and I realised, okay, actually I've never been in hospital before. And I got a real panic attack. And I went in and out of 
Consciousness, sleepiness yeah. and whatever I woke up and it felt like what you're holding in your hand right now it's a clicky pen. pen oh yeah and I felt like it was that going across my head, head like clicking one at a time and that was fine there was no pain so I came back and I was sitting up for the next part and my face was covered that's when they were started to implant the grafts into the top of the head and I felt every single graft going in how many hairs 4200 <laughs> oh my god yeah You've suffered for your yeah. craft. There was nobody to hold my hand. There was nobody to say you'll be okay. Mm-hmm. I think I really, really needed that. And I came back downstairs and they had to bring me for lunch and they watch you having your lunch to make sure you're okay. And the tears streamed down my face. I don't cry. So I'd say the last two times I cried was yeah. watching It's a Sin and when Pat died in EastEnders. Oh my God. So, you know, obviously two big moments. What do you think you were crying for? There was a sense of relief. One of the pain was over and two that I had wanted it for so, so long. And this process had begun. And if you want to see the photos, and who doesn't now, check out his Twitter feed on Mikey underscore OL. Meanwhile, Catherine Thomas also greeted a showbiz pal, an old friend from the airwaves on 2FM, as Ruth Scott joined Catherine to tell her all about her role as a humanist celebrant marrying people. But how did she come across this role in the first place? Did I read, it was the first humanist ceremony <laughs> that you attended your own? It was. I was so, just... So I'm, you're married to Rob. I'm married to Rob. Rob Morgan. Who, who I met on the radio. He rang in to play a competition. Go on. And then I, he met... And just to remind the listeners, so Rob Morgan is Dermot's... Dermot Morgan's son. son. But he rang in to he your radio He rang in to play show. a competition. Here, in this building. He lost and we sent him out some rubbish Disney hit CD compilation and he's so polite and so well brought up that he sent me a Facebook message afterwards saying, thanks very much, I got my CD. I did not know yeah. that. Yeah. And then you, you met up and you connected yeah. and that was it. Yeah. We were offered the waxwork statue of Dermot Morgan to bring to our wedding. <laughs> we decided it might be just a tiny bit too odd. But like, I just thought, I don't want to have any religion in my life and I didn't want to have it in a wedding ceremony. Mm. And we got this lovely man called Dennis Hobson who was great and we chose readings and we had music and I say to people my first wedding I went to humanist wedding was my own so I don't expect necessarily everybody to know what goes on Another familiar voice Brendan Gleeson in Miriam's studio on Sunday who I have to say was in top form full of the chats as you talked about life the Oscars Colin Farrell and the St Francis Hospice and more about that in a moment the whole thing was very celebratory. But Brendan started by giving us a real insider's view of the Oscars. From my personal point of view, I kind of knew I was out of the running. The Irish were out in force at this year's ceremony, as we know. And Brendan talked about how the nomination is the thing. How did you know that? Uh, I just the zeitgeist. I just knew okay. the way that the things had moved. It's an odd process. Everybody says it, but it's hard to believe if you're on the outside. But the nomination is the thing, really. I have to say the nomination was a real thrill. It was fantastic and especially when we got so many. Yeah, it was incredible. Uh, it was fantastic and even the fact that we didn't pick up anything. You know, the few Irish that did were celebrated communally and we were all there for each other and it's, it's a bizarre occasion. You know, I wouldn't sit through the Oscars watching it to be honest with you. I wouldn't Would you switch not? it on, no. But being there was one of the brilliant memories. I was sitting beside Colin and his young lad Henry. Yeah. We were sitting in the front row. (laughs) It was brilliantly celebratory in the sense that we were right up in front of the stage. The live show itself, which I always felt, geez, it's about four hours long. The actual live show was stunning. You know, it doesn't get an awful lot better. We had a fantastic night. There was something properly generous in the room that, you know, we know all the tears and all that stuff. Some of it is genuine and then some of it is just sort of overdone to me. But I do think people are genuinely overwhelmed when they Mm -hmm. get in front of there. 
He and Colin Farrell have a unique relationship, both on and off the screen, and he told Miriam more about it. I think everyone who was watching as well felt so proud. I think some of them was about 25% of the nominees were actually Irish. Now, a lot of them were the Banshees. But also just seeing yourselves and Colin, because... You like you get on so well, don't you? You are yeah, close. Yeah, we do. Like it's, it's it's always been easy. Like he's he's somebody that I have huge admiration for in the way that mm-hmm. he saw light and dark in his life, and he chose the light in a very very unashamed way. Mm-hmm. He just made a decision, followed it, and he's a huge heart. And I think it takes real bravery to actually make that kind of decision. Mm-hmm. So from the time I met him. You know, there's a degree of sensitivity and it's great, but also he's, you know, he's a canat, as they say, <laughs> that there's a bit of devilment in him, full of generosity of spirit. Mm. And it's just we could do a lot more of it in the world, basically. Now, while Brendan gave us great gossip about the Oscars, he was in studio on a serious mission to highlight the fundraising work for the St. Francis Hospice in Rohini. And, you know, when we tell you on this show to get in touch in case you hear something that you'd like to nominate for playback. Well, in this case, a listener, let's call him John. In fact, his name really is John. Anyway, John emailed playback at rt.ie, drawing our attention to the next bit of the conversation, saying that the real gem in Brendan's interview was not the Oscars bit, but this bit. So, John, this is for you. What I see in, the, in there in St. Francis, the idea of a woolly notion of kindness being at the top of the tree is very concrete. It's real. I think it's miraculous what they're doing. And they, the amount of people who come in and volunteer and do stuff like that, but also the hard-nosed professionalism of how to do this thing properly. I mean, it's an example for the country. You believe that model could be adopted in other areas All over. of life? Like yes, housing. I do. I would take it as the basic notion of government that this is what we're trying to do and that you would drive it with the same relentless professionalism and the lack of faffing about when things are not working or people aren't doing what they need to be doing. Get them the hell out of there. I mean it. What I want to see is that you don't accept it. You don't accept the nonsense. If, if you follow the model of what I see in, the, in there in St. Francis, as a model for how we want to live in this republic. This is what people died for so that we can put ourselves at the top of the tree and our welfare and the commitment to it, the ruthlessness it might require. I think it's an example for everybody. But while Brendan Gleeson might have been inside at the Oscars ceremony, so many of us at home were tuning in from our couches to see the action. And another cast member of the Banshees film was the same. Pat, you've had a remarkable career, my gosh. From one mean? half of The Unbelievables to the bar owner of nine times Oscar-nominated Banshees of Inish Erin. Oh, yeah. What a success uh, that film is having. The beloved Pat Short joined Marty Marcy on Easter Monday morning to give us even more gossip. Although, as he admitted, he didn't actually get to act in any scenes with Jenny the donkey. But we won't hold that against him. You once said you were not taken seriously as an actor until you made the film Garage. So as being part of a nine times Oscar-nominated film Serious enough. Sure, I can't get people to laugh at me now is the problem, Marty. <laughs> <laughs> it's gone full circle. Uh, no, it's, it was great. It, it was fantastic being part of the film, you know. Um, I'd worked with Martin a lot on theatre. Uh, I'd never done a, a film of Martin's before, so this was, it was great. Enough about that old Oscar stuff, though. Pat Short went back down memory lane with great anecdotes from his time on the road with John Kenny and their hugely successful, if unpredictable, show as The Unbelievables. 
Yeah. What was it like going back, being on the same stage, being in the same movie as John Kenny? Oh, it was great, yeah. It was 2000 when we stopped working together. We did a reunion tour 10 years later. So we hadn't worked together since then. I, I, I also think Martin's a great man for writing the 200, double yeah. And he was always a big fan of the Unbelievables. And the dynamic at the bar with the two was bouncing off each other is what he really wanted there. And it was great. You've had a remarkable career, though, Pat. I mean, you took a risk to make Garage, uh, and it certainly has paid off. Well, I don't know. I, I think Lenny Abramson and the lads took more of a risk than I did. <laughs> Being a comedian, you tend to get pigeonholed, and mm. it's only it's in, it's in the last couple of years, I suppose, really, that you see big American comedians have started doing movies and straight stuff, and vice versa. But still, all the same, I think when the Dumbbellibles was a certain style, cartoonish mm. uh, type. I mean, I went to several yeah. of your shows yeah. and I was always hoping uh, that you'd never pick on me because you know the way you'd come in at the beginning and say, sit here, sit here. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it's funny. We used to play these characters that had power struggle, counsellor, local guy, whatever. And there was one particular theatre where the guy was a bit like that. So John was coming in with a leg of lamb over his shoulder, covered in blood. That's the character. He was mm. coming up from the butcher shop, you know. And I had a brown coat on me being the local civil defence guy going to mm. tell everyone. And your man stops us going, he says, hello, where, where are you after the two? <laughs> and we were kind of stock shot going like because we used to come in the front door like, and he'd go no no where, where, are you, where are you going and someone had to run over and say there the guy's doing the show there the guy so then no everyone wasn't in their seat Yeah. so he ran up the stairs and he went up going get out of those seats you've no business in there and our characters were downstairs going come out of there you've no business in there <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it was the most bizarre night. I remember everyone talking about it after the staff and everyone in the theatre thought it was hilarious. But anyway. <laughs> Moving on to the Morning Ireland studio, is there more potential Irish success too? On the soccer field maybe for an Irish football team? The women's team is in the USA as part of the build-up to the World Cup in Australia Shorkin. Tony O'Donoghue spoke to the Ireland manager after the team lost, but narrowly to an impressive USA team. Irish team lost to the USA 1-0 in the second of their friendlies in St. Louis last night. And I have to say I particularly enjoyed Darren Frehel's loyal summary of the night scoreline to begin with. Very fluky goal, but uh, one, I, I guess, that we'll put aside because I think it was another very encouraging performance. Irish manager Vera Powell disappointed not to get something out of the game. I think that shows you how far they've come. And she's been telling Tony Dunne, who our correspondent, why the two games against the States has given her lots of hope ahead of the Women's World Cup. Every game we have the best game ever, eh? So I'm, I'm so proud of that. We step up and step up and step up and we've made a huge jump here. And I've said before the camp, we need this kind of resistance to make that jump. If this is 100%, you cannot push yourself to 110 and today to 120 compared to last week. How pleased were you, particularly with that first half hour where you know the ball was going into Kira Caruso, coming back outside to Heather Payne? There was a lot of good combination play, and a lot I'm of back cohesion. To the, other side again. the only reason why we lost the grip was because we stopped doing that, and that's what we highlighted at halftime. In the second half, they tried again and tried again. Of course, USA is the first country in the world that ranked number one, and it hurts. It hurts so much to lose like this because how many chances did they actually get? The number one in the world. But we just not get there yet, but that will come. We've got all June for that and we will be there in Australia. We've done so well. No points, but so proud. But in years to come, will we even be watching humans playing football or just robots wearing Irish jerseys? 
As we learn more and more about the power of AI systems and its potential to cause disruption, questions arise about who owns creative material generated by machines. Barry Scannell, Senior Solicitor with William Fry, joins me in studio now to tell us a little bit more about the copyright quandaries that this new technology is causing. We could legislate for this, but you can't really push technology like this underground if it already exists. People are going to keep on using it. Absolutely, and you would have seen recently that Elon Musk and um, a number of other prominent characters in tech called for a pause on AI development. But I think, you know, AI development is, is so inevitable. You might as well go out to the beach with a sweeping brush and try and brush back the tide. I mean, there's, as you say, no putting the genie back in the bottle. Then later on in the Today programme. Point is, we are getting into uncomfortable territory here with robots and AI. Philip turned his robotic gaze towards Brian O'Connell. Well, this is really part of a process that's been going on since the Industrial Revolution. There's always been this suspicion or concern that automation and advances in technology uh, were going to impact on us in a way that was going to be negative. But I suppose the concern is how quickly it's happening now. I noticed a report in the papers today which says competing against a robot makes your brain actually work harder. Philip reassuring Brian O'Connell that it was OK. Brian would not be replaced by a robot. Yet. Have you experimented yet, Brian, with chat GPT? I mean, have you done something like ask it to please write a report in the style of RT Radio 1's Brian O'Connell on the introduction of robotics? Because I'm telling you, you will be surprised at how close <laughs> an answer it is going to produce to what you're giving us this morning. Uh, it, yeah, I'd be afraid to, Philip, in case anyone would cop on to the fact I'm replaceable. <coughs> Irreplaceable. <laughs> it's, 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 your, it's your faults and your flaws that bring a unique quality to your reporting, Brian. Well, whatever about the likes of Brian and Philip being replaced, we are pretty confident here at Playback HQ that no robot could replace us. I mean, humans wouldn't turn to something crass like ChatGBT when they want emotion and honesty and human connection. Would they? Who says romance is dead? Couples are using chat GPT to write their wedding vows. Romance is indeed dead for those couples. If they need to ask a machine how they feel about each other, you know, it's not good. Back on Brendan on Saturday. Proof of the power of human connection, though, and love. I'm joined now by Hermione Duffy. Good morning, Hermione. You're very welcome. Hermione Duffy, wife of co-pilot Captain Mark Duffy of the Coast Guard Rescue Helicopter 116 who lost his life along with three other brave crew members Captain Dara Fitzpatrick and winch crew Paul Ormsby and Kieran Smith in that terrible crash off the Mayo Coast in March 2017. Hermione Duffy talked about the loss of her beloved Mark. So did you know where he was the night of the accident? Did you know what he was doing? No. I didn't know until five o'clock in the morning. Uh, Derek arrived at the house, one of the rear crew, and with two of Mark's best friends. So that was the first I knew of it. I had spoken do, to do Mark you know, the night before night. Do you know then when when they arrived like that? Did you know straight away? Oh, I knew. It was, it was bizarre. I actually thought Mark was sick because one of them had a car the same colour as Mark. And I looked out the window and I went, oh, Mark must be sick. They brought him home from work. And then when I opened the door and I went, oh, no, this is something completely different. And, and Derek was quite quick at saying to me, Hermione, we have a, this is a terrible situation. A helicopter is missing. So it escalated very quickly. So I had to um, get myself together and compose myself. And we knew then, I'd say about four hours later, we kind of knew where the helicopter was, where Mark was, 
Dara had been recovered and th- so there was three still in the helicopter at that time. So well, that's okay. I don't no, want to drag you into yeah, this now. Yeah. Is, it, is it a slow darning realisation that he might not be coming home? They do this training thing where they go to the Dunker in Cork and they're submerged in okay. water and they, oh, the crew, all the crews do it and they have to get to the top of the water and they, they have to get out in different situations. So Mark had done that quite a lot and he had done scuba diving so he had no fear of water. My thoughts were at that time, I said, it's going to be OK because Mark's done the dunker. He's going to get out. His life jacket's going to take him to the water. He's going to have a raft and he's going to be. And that's, I think, my little safety net that I used for those couple of hours to <coughs> talk to the kids to say, this is where daddy will be because this is what I know he will do. But it came around quite quickly that that wasn't going to be the situation. And in an extremely thoughtful, considered, open, stop on your tracks type conversation, Brendan heard about the impact of Mark's death. See, Mark's father died when he was 14 years of age. So I think when he had Fionn then and Esme, both of them, I think he really, really cherished being a dad. My insight into Mark's loss of his dad, I wanted to ensure that I knew we we had to go through this, but I wanted to make it as soft as possible for the for the kids, for Esme and Fionn, so that that the trauma wouldn't impinge upon their lives because they were young. They were children. They're they're teenagers. Their lives have to move on. They have to move with their peer group. So it was to allow them that freedom and not be saddened or brought down or slip into depression or something as a result of this trauma so that I could get them as myself and Mark had a phrase. God, we just want to get them safely to adulthood. That's what we want to do. Just keep them on the straight and narrow. And finally, to end, a reminder about how music can be a balm to unimaginable pain like that. On Tuesday, Ray Cuddy was talking about the Radio 1 album of the week. It is from the Yorkshire group The Youngins and their album Tiny Notes was released last Friday. Now, I was a bit distracted, busy peeling the carrots or something equally exciting when Ray's introduction to the song stopped me. Now, this song tells the story of Jack Merritt. Now, Jack was a young man working to rehabilitate people in prison, but he tragically died in the London Bridge terror attack in 2019. Carrots dropped and peeled into the saucepan. I reached over and turned up the volume. And out of this awful event, Jack Merritt's father, his name is David Merritt, he urged people to, quote, remember his son and to borrow his intelligence, to share his drive, feel his passion, burn with his anger and extinguish hatred with his kindness. Never give up his fight. So the young ones, and this is a beautiful song that they've composed in honour of Jack Merritt. This is Jack Merritt's Boots. Jack Merritt wore Doc Martin boots on his tireless feet. And he dressed just like his favourite pint, black and white and neat. And his smile was like the morning breaking on a boundless shore. And from the start his great big heart was like an open door. As I came over London Bridge, all the flowers had gone. But I swear I saw Jack Merritt's boots and they were marching on. Jack Merritt did a job he loved and he knew how love could heal. From a friendly glance to a second chance he knew that change is real. And as he came over London Bridge he was all that he could be. But he never knew that 25 was the oldest he would be. As I came over London Bridge all the flowers had gone. But I swear I saw Jack Merritt's boots and they were marching on. Ray Cuddy and Shin, Am Chun Suspio Gahogal, Arash Latilla O Uchthron Biden, a young couple of nomad. Agus Folter Rash, 
And back to the historic events of this week and the visit by the 46th President of the United States of America, Joe Biden. And really, it was a visit in three acts. The preparations. They're getting ready for a very special visitor here in Ballina. They're even making the roads here sparkle. Workers have power-hosed the streets. The politics. Firstly, to say that the president's visit is extremely welcome and it comes uh, as we mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. And the homecoming. Well, Mom, (laughs) you said it would happen. So let's flick back through this historic week of images and sounds, starting with Act One, the preparations. While teams of workers across the island were busy preparing buildings, gardens and all the detailed background work that goes into making a trip like this a success, on Morning Ireland, they start the week by asking what this visit would mean back home in America. There's widespread media coverage of the visit in this country, but what about in the United States? We're joined this morning from Belfast by Adam Cancrin, who is White House reporter with Politico. And what's the interest level like in the United States, Adam, do you think? There's a lot of attention on this for a couple of reasons. Is, you know, what our relationship in the US is with the UK. It was a little bit rocky during the Boris Johnson era and we'll be watching closely to see how that relationship develops. While teams of workers across the island were busy preparing buildings, gardens and all the detailed background work that goes into making a trip like this a success, long hours, very long hours. And the final stop of the day will take him to Dublin Castle. He'll be hosted for a special dinner. The venue, which is run by the Office of Public Works, has been undergoing intensive cleaning and restoration works in preparation for the visit. The staff at Dublin Castle were hard at work too, as Kate Varley found out from Morning Ireland. At the moment I am dipping all the silver and polishing up the silver. State China is all ready to go. Tess Kerwin is the head housekeeper at Dublin Castle. Even the girls, we do all look forward to when we hear that somebody, a VIP, is arriving at Dublin Castle. And of course, this time it is President Biden. Particularly special for you. Ah, yes, it is. Like last week, we were doing the chandeliers in St. Patrick's Hall. So they have to get dropped and the visitors were able to see us washing them. And you were listening there to the head housekeeper at Dublin Castle, Tess Kerwin ending. And just to note that some of the arrangements that are being made for the official dinner in honour of President Biden, they'll be left in place for the public to view on Saturday when the castle reopens. And also on that programme, along with him will be Democratic Congressman Brendan Boyle, whose ancestry is from Donegal. He's on the line this morning. Audrey Carvel spoke to Congressman Brendan Boyle, who's travelling with the president. Well, I, I happen to know that it is very important to him personally. It is in many ways celebrating a commitment that began at least 25 years ago. And I know this because he has said it to me personally many times, just how much he, he cares very deeply uh, about his Irish and Irish-American heritage. Audrey was keen to ask him about the political preparations and how the DUP in particular might view a speech. Is it a problem, do you think, though, that for many in the DUP, they don't see the Democratic Party as honest brokers here? Some of them don't, at least. They hear Joe Biden making jokes about never wearing orange. How does, does he, how do you use your party, convince them that you can be trusted? I, I noticed some of the people who today are praising President uh, Clinton's even head in this at the time, 25 years ago, were accusing him of being a, an IRA sympathizer. But whenever an American president gets involved, 
frankly, whether the president's a Democrat or a Republican, there are some allegations in some quarters that an American president has a bias in a certain direction. I, I think the reality is uh, quite obviously otherwise, that this president, as all of his predecessors, have been fairly even-handed and, in the end of the day, attempting to forge and keep the peace. I want to ask you about Joe Biden himself and his plans for the White House. Nothing official yet. Do you think that's a good idea or do you think he should face a challenge for the nomination from within the Democratic Party? I was one of the first uh, members of Congress to officially endorse Joe Biden's candidacy for the presidency. I strongly support him running again. Um, I, I do believe that Donald Trump represents an existential threat to American democracy. Well, you know, I, I joke to him, the, the big commitment he should make in Mayo is to help Mayo finally win the Sam McGuire <laughs> Cup. I think that would be... I think that would be more of a crowd pleaser. Well, he's going to a religious shrine in Knox, so he could maybe pray for a miracle or something there when he's there. <laughs> so that's the preparation bit underway. So on to Act Two, the politics. Sometimes, especially when the distance of history, we forget how hard earned, how astounding that piece was at the moment. President Biden's visit to mark the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Good Friday Agreement started with a speech in the University of Ulster in front of a large crowd. And there he spoke passionately about the hard road travelled to peace so far. It shifted the political gravity in our world. In 1998, it was the longest running conflict in Europe since the end of World War II. Thousands of families have been affected by the troubles. Losses are real. Every person killed in the troubles left an empty chair at the dining room table. Peace was not inevitable. As George Mitchell often said, the negotiations had, quote, 700 days of failure and one day of success. Walking a delicate line, his speech covered a wide range of topics as he encouraged the parties to progress the institutions. As a friend, I believe democratic institutions established through the Good Friday Agreement remain critical to the future of Northern Ireland key core of his message was an appeal to the Northern Ireland parties to find a way to restore the executive and the power-sharing institutions at Stormont. He said that was a matter for the Northern Ireland parties, but he hoped that the Assembly and the executive and the other institutions established by the agreement would be restored. RTE's Carol Coleman, herself a former American correspondent, gave this assessment to Brian Dobson on the News at One. I thought he talked to the young people there at the university in a sort of grandfatherly way. He was explaining to them that there is this huge population in the US that cares about what happens in Northern Ireland. And he said it's something that brings Washington together, that it's bipartisan. He then went on to mention things like, you know, the movies and TV shows from Ireland that everybody in America loves to watch and gave a... So he was really kind of hooking into the young people, saying, you don't have to leave. It's your job to sustain the peace, he said, unleash the economic prosperity, just get going, keep it going. And later that evening, the big question was, how did the DUP respond to the speech? We also have uh, Gregory Campbell on the line. Well, Gregory Campbell from that party had this to say to Sarah McInerney. I believe your party leader, Jeffrey Donaldson, had a brief conversation with US President Joe Biden. Um, he said his remarks were measured. Do you agree? 
Joe Biden does have a bit of a track record in terms of the the Irish-American aspect of his background. But when you had, for example, the, the so-called joke in the White House of several years ago where the orange wasn't welcome there, we had an explanation that that was some sort of humour and uh, coloured our judgment about him. But repeatedly, a number of us have said, well, let's wait and see when he comes. Uh, and then the important business is what flows thereafter. Will the business uh, start to pick up and will the American businesses that he was alluding to and the, will they be coming here to see what a good place it is to invest in. All in all, it was a reasonably measured speech. So with the words reasonable tone ringing in their ears and that first hurdle cleared, President Biden then moved down to the south of the country. With a few family stops along the way, we'll cover those in a minute, we're going to keep our political hat on for the moment as President Biden then arrived in Dublin. Starting at the oars... I know you're mixing in august company out there. No happier man at the oars that morning than John Cook, swapping the rain for sunshine and he spoke to Philip Boucher Hayes. But uh, Mike, tell us where he is and what he's at today. I'm happy to report there's a really lovely day and lovely bright sunshine shining over the lawns here at Oris and Uthuron, where I am. President Biden due to arrive here in the next hour uh, to meet President Michael D. Higgins in an official reception at Oris and Uthuron. He'll uh, plant an oak tree, we're told, and ring the peace bell, which was installed here to mark 10 years of the Good Friday Agreement. Here, though, they will be introduced to President Higgins. They're hoping for photo ops uh, with the two President, maybe later on, Philip. John, thank you very much. And as we leave you this morning, indeed, the presidential motorcade is actually just pulling up at the front of Oris and Uthron. Before moving on to the Doyle on Thursday afternoon. And Sarah and Barry Lennon were on duty here. But I think he's entering the chamber now, He Sarah, is indeed. He? Everyone is on their feet as he goes down the steps, taking his time, shaking everybody's hands. There we go. Yeah, uh, and Enda Kenny, one of the first people, rising to his feet alongside uh, another former chief of Bercia Hearn. The Secretary of State Blinken there as well from the American side. Biden now waving to the press gallery there, shaking hands with the Count Corla. Uh, uh, one last picture opportunity before we get down to speech time. Huge applause, everyone settling down now. Well, Mom, <laughs> you said it would happen. This week marks a vital milestone for peace. Political violence must never again be allowed to take hold in this island. There's not much to me to say from the United States, but that must be the goal which guides us. Because the greatest peace dividend of the Good Friday Agreement is an entire generation of young people whose hearts have been shaped not by grievances of the past, but by confidence that there are no checkpoints on their dreams. They're writing a new future. Future of unlimited possibilities. Possibilities. We believe anything is possible if we set our mind to it and we do it together. This is the United States of America and Ireland. There's nothing beyond our capacity because that's the history of both our countries. It's an honor to be here. Thank you very much. Well, they're still applauding in the Dáil Chamber. Sam spoke to one of the signatories of the Good Friday Agreement to get her reaction. Uh, we're joined on the line by Monica McWilliams, co-founder of the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition and a signatory of the Good Friday Agreement. It was a very wide-ranging speech. I thought he was very emotional, felt at home. What I find was interesting that he reached out to the issue of humanitarian aid and he gave the young people a, a great moral boost, which I think we all need. 
When I heard his words today, I thought, this is what is needed north and south at the minute. It was a very personal speech, as, as you've said, but there was lots of politics sort of dotted through it as well. He said that, and I'll quote, the United Kingdom should be working closer with Ireland in this endeavour. Political violence must never be allowed. What did you make of those comments? That was an interesting statement. It was just a very short statement. And it's probably all it needed. Mm. And he is absolutely correct that for six years there was a breakdown in the relationship um, between the British government and the Irish government over the fallout from Brexit. Now that relationship has been restored and I think that was a message. Don't ever let that happen again. And then it's on to Act 3, the homecoming. The response from the crowds has been so enthusiastic all week. And apart from a few unfortunate slips of the tongue, black and tans anyone? Rob Carney, very nice fella, rugby player, and he's part of that, the Louth connection. And he was there in the in the pub when President Biden made his last comments, talking about the fact that Biden referred to the All Blacks as the Black and Tans by accident. Slip of the tongue. As soon as he said it, I went, oh, they're going to feast on that now. And fair enough, listen, I'm not his agent, but I will say you had a long day. And knowing Rob Carney a little bit, not much, um, he, if he had been living in another era, he would have beaten the Black and Tans as well as the All Blacks. He would have beaten the living shit out of them, actually. He's a big lad. And he would have dragged them all out one by one as they were attacking some poor old family in a house somewhere. And he would have told them, send them all back home to whatever barracks they belong to. That's my little fantasy moment. (laughs) Which the president pokes some fun at later in the dawn. In the Oval Office, I have the rugby ball signed by the Irish rugby team. The ball the team played when they beat the All Blacks in Dublin (laughs) in 2021. It was a wonderful visit for him and his team. Ballina never looked better. We've Chinooks in the air. We have blackout vans all over the town. We've got loads of Secret Service walking around the town. Even one of the guys here can't get over the starburst. Something as simple as that. He's come in and he bought three or four packets because he's delighted with them. And the Irish history books have another chapter to add. President Biden goes home with a welcome back message ringing in his ears. Sine Wem Shidunyo, Slán Agus People of Ireland. It's so good to be back in Ireland. If you forgive the poor attempted Irish, Tamaisha Walia, I'm at home. <laughs>